All right, well, how's everyone tonight? Doing all right? Doing good? Okay. Well, we'll get this thing started here this evening. Um, good to see everybody. Apologize for missing out two weeks ago there. We got, uh, I tried to push through it. I got hit with some food poisoning or something, and it, it wouldn't, you wouldn't have wanted me here. So, <laughs> uh, but anyway, so we missed that. And then last week we had the, uh, the meeting there at Glencoe uh, with Darren Pfizer. Um, I thought that meeting went really well. Uh, you know, it was a good study on the kingdom and um, a lot of things about the divided kingdom, a lot of prophecy and things and the fulfillment of those. And um, anyway, I, I really enjoyed the class. Hope uh, appreciate everyone that came out to that too. We had a good crowd every night. Um, and so looking forward to part two. Um, I can tell you what part two is going to look like. Um, right now, Darren's plan in part two is to go through the feasts of the Old Testament. And you know, he, uh, I told the group at Glencoe there Sunday when we were, because see, Darren, Darren started, he was preaching for probably about 10 years, and then he, he ended up hearing about this Bible college there in Portsmouth with Jim Spinotti and him and some other guys from the area went up to just sit in the class, and his words were he came out and, like, that was the first time he realized he didn't know anything. So he signed up for classes. He graduated the year before I started. So I was working with Darren. I was his youth minister for a summer, and then I went off there too. And anyway, when we were in school, we had a professor that taught a lot of the Old Testament stuff, the tabernacle class, and he, would, he was big on papers. And I was I'm big on papers for one semester. I had a group do the papers, and then I realized I had to sit and read them. <laughs> and I was like, well, I don't know we're going to do much of those anymore. Um, but, you know, I would write a paper, and it'd be like two pages, three pages long, you know, I might bump the font up a little bit and double space it, make it look a little bigger than it was. But um, Darren wrote a book. I mean, his paper for this Old Testament class when he was in there was called Trumpets and Timelines. And I got a copy of it. It's, I mean, it's got to be that thick. It's the biggest, I mean, charts and I mean, I don't, it's, it's, it's huge. It's massive. He's been working on this stuff for a very long time. But, you know, we went through the tabernacle uh, here about a year ago. You know, we went through that class and we talked about the typology we saw, we saw Christ and we saw the church and every aspect of that. And, you know, so much of the Old Testament falls into the same. And I think we saw that with this kingdom study this week with Darren. Uh, just the connectivity of everything throughout the Old Testament with what we're doing in Christ and in the church today. And so the feast days, there's a lot of typology in those feasts too. And so, um, you know, but it's an area that I'm not, I'm not that familiar with. So I'm really looking forward to the class. I've, I've heard Darren talk about it a little bit. Uh, but anyway, just to let everyone know, Part two is coming here soon, and uh, I think it's in May. Is that right, May? Yeah, and so I said, okay, flyers on the table, very good. So anyway, I'm excited about that, and I hope you're all making plans for, for that as well. So, But again, appreciate everyone that came out and participated this week uh, with the first half of that class. I thought it went really, really well. So uh, tonight, um, we're going to get on into Jude. Um, we're behind schedule now <laughs> because I, I was sick. So we've got a lot of ground to cover. And tonight is going to be a night where it does, we're not going to cover a lot of ground. But there's some things I want to cover. And, you know, uh, one of the nice things about doing a verse-by-verse study is you get to deal with topics as the Holy Spirit brings them forward in the text. And, you know, whenever I'm teaching through a book, sometimes there's opportunities to kind of do some side studies on some things. We did that in the parable study. You know, we took a couple weeks and really talked about servants and some of those different Greek words that were implied in there and, you know, bond servants and things like that. Uh, we're going to kind of do that tonight a little bit with some, some pretty common terminology. But, you know, we've got we've to narrow some of this stuff down. 
to where we can uh, really know what it means, what it doesn't mean. So anyway, uh, let's turn in the Jude and uh, let's have a word of prayer here before we kick it off. So let's, uh, let's bow our heads. <clears throat> Father God, we're grateful tonight, thankful for the opportunity to come back together here again this week. Uh, thankful for everyone who's taken time out of their uh, schedules and uh, to be a part of this class. Uh, thankful for the desire to, to learn and to be taught and, and to uh, uh, be students of your word. And I just pray that, uh, that Father, you give us all wisdom here as we examine uh, your text. And that, Father, we would let your word be the final authority um, on all matters here in our life and in the church. And as Christians, Father, that we can, we can look to the Bible uh, as a lamp uh, to our path, as a, as a light to our feet. And, Father, we can see exactly where to go and how to take our next step and use the Bible appropriately for those things and um, be able to have a, a, a firm defense for the things that we believe in, the hope that's in us. And I pray that the world can see that in the way that we live and the way we conduct ourselves, our priorities, our value systems, those things. Uh, and so tonight, Father, we just pray again for, uh, for wisdom. We pray for integrity too as we, as we look at your, your word, as we see um, the things that are, that are being brought out here tonight. I just pray for integrity to take the word as it is. And uh, Father, for us to maybe get through um, some of the ideas or preconceived ideas maybe that we might have in our heads and, and always let, uh, let truth prevail there. Father, we pray all this in the name of Christ Jesus, our Lord, our Savior. Amen. <clears throat> okay. Um, so, let's uh, think about how to do this tonight because we, um, we got a couple words I want to get into. And I don't know, we don't have quite enough time to get into it like I'd want. But last week we started Jude verse 1 and, and we talked a little bit about some of the problems that were taking place. I, I don't have a PowerPoint tonight because uh, we're, we're just dealing with some terminology in verse 2. But, um, but last week we talked about, um, you know, uh, why Jude, you know, even, even the introduction to a book like this, it's not arbitrary, it's not, just, it's not just meaningless words. Everything from the beginning of this letter is addressing the problem that Jude's trying to correct and, and, and the encouragement that he's trying to impart. And, and really, we need to see Jude as a rallying cry um, for, for the Lord's army to step up and, and to, to contend for the faith and to fight for the things that matter, uh, to put their things in their proper order, you know, those sorts of things. And so we began that last week. This week, you know, we're just looking at verse 2. May mercy and peace and love be multiplied to you. And so, you know, there's the verse and and there's the terms that I think we need to look into. But here's why I want us to look into it. We're going to talk about mercy. Uh, We're going to talk... We're going to talk about grace because I, it's not one of the words, but it needs it needs talked about. I mean, it's hard to bring up things like mercy and peace without also identifying and, and having a good biblical definition for what in the world grace is. And um, and when we look at grace, then we'll we'll understand why that leads to peace. And we're going to look at at love a little bit tonight as well, which is fitting. I think isn't tomorrow Love Day or yeah something like that. So yeah. <clears throat> Happy Hallmark Day, uh, <laughs> but uh, but anyway, um, let's here, turn to Ephesians chapter five. Ephesians chapter five. Um, I want us to kind of see where I'm going with this tonight, and why why these things are important. Okay, we talk about while you're turning there. We, when we talk about mercy, we talk about love, we talk about peace, we talk about grace. These are words that are. I mean, when you talk about foundational to the faith that's within us, to, to Christianity, to the Bible, I mean, these words, I mean, so much of, of what Jesus did and, and who he is hinges on our understanding of mercy and grace and truth 
and love. I mean, that's, I mean, you know, if you ask the world, for example, God is what? And to fill in the blank, what are they going to say? God's love, right? And so, so and, I, and of course, you know, the scripture brings that out as well. But, you know, even the world, though, they, they, can, they can fill that blank in. Well, God is love, okay? Well, look at our culture today. What is love? I mean, we got a clue. I mean, you see how messed up we are on love? I mean, it means nothing. And so, you know, if you can attack love, we've now attacked God. You see what I mean? So, so if we can get our people, our culture, to, to start changing the, the meanings of these words, then you change fundamentally what Christianity is, what our faith is. You change who God is. You change what Christ is about. And so it's really important that we, can, we don't get these things twisted up because, you know, words that quit... If words don't have a specific and intentional meaning then the word can mean almost anything. And if it can mean anything, then the word's useless. Okay? And so Ephesians chapter 5, look at this warning in verse 6. Let no one deceive you with what? Empty words. For because of these things, the wrath of God comes upon the sons of disobedience. What is an empty word? A word that doesn't mean anything. Right? It's hollow. It doesn't have any substance. It's a word that can mean anything. And so, you know, we live in a time where our words are meaningless. Where, where words, you can, people can say whatever they want, and then what do they say? Oh, I didn't, that's not what I meant. Right? That's not what I meant. And we hear that all the time. Well, that's what I said. That's not what I meant. You hear that when people argue. You'll hear that in marriages. You know, for whatever reason, husband and wives, man, they know how to push each other's buttons. They can say some of the most hateful things to one another. But when the fight's over, well, that's what I said. It's not what I meant. Does that work? You know? I mean, I hear this all the time. I hear people get in arguments. The heat of the moment, they say something, and it's like, whoa, they went too far. Well, that's not what I meant. Well, here's the deal. People only hear what you say. They don't hear what you mean. How many times have you been in a Bible study and heard this? Well, I know that's what the Bible says, but that's not what it means. You think there's a connection there? I mean, the reason people do that with the Bible is because we've learned to do it with everything else. Well, that's what he said, but that's not what he meant. We, now we can do that with God. And so it's really important as Christians, just a principle that we speak intentionally in specific and we we use words appropriately and that we mean what we say and we say exactly what we mean i mean you can't that is such a, a a huge point of christianity that we say what we mean and we mean what we say we specifically say what needs to be said in the moment um you know the other hand I, you know I've, I've talked to guys uh I knew a friend that, that went out to a church. I think I've told this story before, but I mean, you could tell it a hundred times from a hundred different, different people. Happens all the time. He goes to a church. They're looking for a preacher. He's looking for a place to preach. He sits down with them. Okay? <clears throat> he tells them, all I care about is that we do things the Bible way. And they all agree. That's all we want too. We're just going to do things the Bible way. They don't talk specifics. So he, hire, he gets hired on, he becomes their preacher. Within three weeks, he's fired. You know why? Because <laughs> the specifics of what the Bible way looks like, they differed on opinion on that big time. You see? And so if we're not specific, you know, we, you know and, and that's the problem. We live in a world where everything's just so generic. And so anyway, the point is, don't be deceived with empty words. We need specific, accurate language. Okay? That's really, really important. So the words that we use are important and you know using correct words and correct terminology and using it in the right manner matters 
Um, I have a rule that I've been trying to live by since I was somebody's preacher. And it's that I'm not, I don't want to ever use words that I can't define. I don't want to use words that I don't understand. Now that limits my vocabulary. Okay, I can't, there's only so many words I can say now. But I got caught when I was younger trying to use words that sounded important because I heard other people use them. And then, you know, you get someone's like, well, what does that mean? I don't know. That's what, you know, you, that's what people say, right? And we do this with church stuff all the time, right? You know, we, we know that the guy up front's not a pastor, but everywhere in the world, what do they call the guy up front? Why? Why, why does that even happen? And like people tell me, Ethan, just leave it alone. It's not that big of a deal. No one's going to hell over that, this, that, and the other. You can read the Bible. The guy up here is not a pastor, Right? The, the preacher, the evangelist, he's not a pastor. So why, why are we okay with using bad terminology all the time? This room is not a sanctuary. There is nothing in the Bible that remotely hints that God lives inside these four walls and that this room is the sanctuary. But everywhere I go, oh yeah, the sanctuary's in here. You know, go shut the lights off in the sanctuary. We use that word all the time, okay? Uh, and so, anyway, I'm, I'm not trying, I mean, we could, we could spend the rest of the night going through bad terminology in the church, but it's like those things don't come from the Bible, and it, they, they happen because no one's willing to just stand up and say, wait a minute, that's not actually, that's not accurate. In love, let me correct you so that you don't sound ignorant anymore. And listen, ignorant shouldn't be offensive, okay? All ignorant means is I didn't know better, okay? I'm ignorant about a lot of things. Doesn't mean I'm stupid, it means there's things I don't know about. And there's a lot of people in church that are ignorant, and all that means is they've not been taught properly. They've not opened the Bible up to see for themselves. It's okay to be ignorant. You can only know what you know, but no reason to stay ignorant and no reason to let people remain ignorant just because we'd rather them be ignorant than hurt their feelings. Okay? And that's all that is. That's all that is. So anyway, <clears throat> like I said, it matters what words we use. And and so anyway, let's, let's kind of get into this. We're going to start with mercy. Okay, we're going to work our way down to love if we've got time for it tonight. Um, but, uh, and, and, and you know, we could have we took four weeks, one, one week on each one of these words. Honestly, we could have done that. That would have been, um, but we just don't have time for that. So <clears throat> that being said, let's talk about mercy. What, how do we define that word? <clears throat> Anybody got an answer? Put you on the spot tonight. A free gift from God, okay. Okay, I've heard that before, right? When you don't get what you do deserve. So an example of that would be like a punishment, not handed out, not dealt out. That's, that would be a, 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 an act of mercy, okay? Um, you know, one of the things that... I think mercy is one of these things that's difficult to understand uh, and appreciate till you've seen the other side of the coin, Okay, and we're, we're going to kind of look at this. There's a mindset that's important that we kind of establish um, through, through all of these words, but people whine about God and fairness all the time, especially people that aren't actually involved with the Lord, uh, but they'll complain about whether God's being fair. How could a loving God do this? Well, you know, it wouldn't be fair if God did that. And people say that about hell and about judgment and, and about consequences to life in general and, you know, and those sorts of things. So we've all been around that. I mean, this is a pretty, I mean, if God exists, how come, how come this happens? How come he allows this to go on? And, you know, it's just not fair. It's just not fair. And, you know, if you try to stand on the word of God and somebody dies, Okay, I, I've yet to be to, at a funeral where the person didn't end up in heaven. You know what I mean? People get better when they die than when they were in real life. And so someone will die and they, they weren't faithful to the Lord. They, they, 
they didn't love the Lord, you know, uh, but as soon as they're dead, it's all we want to talk about is they had this great relationship with God and they're in heaven, they're in a better place, at least they're not suffering. Those sorts of things come out. And, you know, the thing is, if you try to stress with them that, you know, the Bible's very clear that, you know, it's, it's not about, well, this was a good person or, you know, and, and how about this? Have we ever heard someone say this? Well, if they didn't get to heaven, nobody did. Okay. When do we say that? Do we say that when someone obeyed the gospel? No. We say that when someone didn't obey the gospel, but we couldn't imagine that God would turn them away. Okay, that's the idea. And so, and, and, some, and what we're doing is we're making a decision in that moment based on what? Feelings. Not facts, right? Not scripture, not truth, but how we feel. And that's difficult. And that's why, that's why it's important that we understand that you and I can't be the judge of these things. Only God can be the judge of these things because judge, God can be impartial, right? He can be an impartial judge that doesn't show partiality. And so <clears throat> people will say things like, well, this isn't fair. The, the problem with it is that we don't really completely understand fairness, okay? Romans 3.23, I'm sure we all know it. For all have sinned, right, and fall short of the glory of God, okay? So what is fair in that situation? What, is, what does fair get us? If, that, if that's true, right, and we've all sinned, and normally I'd ask, you know, is there anyone here that, that thinks that that's not them? I've actually met people, I've studied with people that think they've never sinned before. Like that's, that's been a Bible study that I've had to have with people, like trying to show them, you know, they're like, well, I've, I've got no sin in my life, I've never sinned. I'm like, you got to be kidding me. <laughs> you know, so, I mean, we can, we can hit like two words in the Bible and I can, I can that's all it's going to take for, you know, but, but yeah, but anyway, that's hard, hard to deal with, hard to save someone that doesn't think they need saved, you know. Uh, but if we've all sinned, and that's a true statement, and we all fall short of the glory of God, what does fairness get us? I'm sorry, what? Romans 6, 23. Yeah, the wages of sin, what we've earned, right? What we've, what we've earned uh, because of our sin is death. And so that's, that's fair. Fair is we stand alone at judgment day, right? Fair is that there, we don't get a mediator. We don't get redemption. Fair is we have no forgiveness. We have no help. We receive what we've earned for our sins. You know, Isaiah 59, 2 says, Your iniquities have made a separation uh, between you and your God. Your sins have, you know, hidden His face and He doesn't, he, you know, your sins put God's in a situation where God's going to not look at you and He's going to cover His ears. Right? I mean, that's the situation that we're in because of sin. That's, and that's fair. That's fair. That's the point is that is fair. And so, fair is that we pay the price for our sins and our transgressions. And, and, you know, and here's the other side of that coin. Was it fair for Jesus to have to leave heaven, to come to earth, to be born like a bondservant, to be mistreated, to be lied about, to be left, to be crucified and beaten and die? Was that fair? See, fairness isn't what put Jesus on the cross. What, what did put Jesus on the cross was the love of God and mercy and grace. Okay? And so... When we, when we look at, 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 at these, these words, you know, it's really important that we understand the other side of that coin. You know, what would happen if there was no mercy? And we get a pretty good example of that throughout the Bible because there's a period in time where we don't really see mercy, okay? Where we are living under law and a covenant that was based on regulations and rules. And in that covenant, in, with dealing with those laws and those rules, it wasn't three or four strikes and you're out, okay? One sin and you're guilty. And you don't get unguilty. You don't get a second chance. There's no do-overs, right? That's, that's how the Old Testament played out. 
Um, let's, let's turn to John chapter 8. We're going to go through this. We're going to see this kind of played out here. Now, I'm sure this is a familiar account for us. <clears throat> and, and the reason that we're going through these things is because, well, one, it gives, gives me a chance to go through these things. And so I, that's, that's what I like about verse-by-verse studies like this. But the other thing is the, the, the audience that Jude's writing to, they, they need to not forget these things either. Um, they're in danger of, of going apostate and falling away. And uh, uh, they need reminded of these, these points here that we're talking about as well. John chapter 8, we're going to look here. This is the account um, of the woman uh, who's been caught in adultery and is brought out uh, by the Pharisees there. And so uh, John chapter 8, let's just kind of start walking through it a little bit. Uh, it says, Jesus went to the Mount of Olives, verse 1. Verse 2, early in the morning he came again into the temple and all the people were coming to him and he sat down and he began to teach them. Let's, let's kind of stop there for just a second. We're going to kind of break this down as we go. It's, it's a big deal that Jesus shows up. And where's, where did he show up? The temple. So Jesus is constantly out in public doing these things. There's a lot of people there. And, you know, we're at this point, you know, it doesn't take long for Jesus to hit the scene and already the religious establishment hate him. You know, I mean, from the very get-go, you know, we've gotten John 2, him cleansing the temple and running everybody out of there. And, uh, and the, you know, and, and people, are, people don't have, they're not okay with this. You know, we get to John chapter 5, he heals the, the, the paralytic there at the pool of Bethesda. And, you know, like the people, are, I mean, the, the leaders want him dead. I mean, they want to kill him. You know, that's, that's their, that, you know those, those thoughts are already in their heads. And, you know, we're, we're, we're going to go back and look at a couple things. But in chapter 7, you know, the religious leaders sent officers into the temple to seize Jesus, and they were unable to. And so in chapter 8, he comes right back comes right back and that's that's a big deal because most of us wouldn't have you know we would have walked away from that and uh you know and, and and given up but jesus comes right back and he draws you know and at this point his life's kind of like this broken record he, he draws a crowd he begins to teach them and instruct them and then people leave and he's alone and then it's, well, let's just rinse and repeat. You know, so we go somewhere else. He draws a crowd, begins to preach. Everybody loves the miracles. Everybody loves him feeding the multitudes. Everybody loves that he can heal the sick. But when he starts to open his mouth, people have a problem with Jesus every time. And so I've said it for years. If he could learn to keep his mouth shut, he wouldn't have been crucified. You know, I mean, they wouldn't have wanted him dead. Okay, but he just kept preaching the message and people don't like it. And so... And so anyway, so, he, so here he is, he's, he's back in the, the process, he's drawing another crowd. And they've come, and, and you've got to understand too, that one of the things that people liked about his teaching was that he spoke as one with authority. Okay, and that's, that's not just because he's Jesus. It's because what they're used to hearing is people who are speaking on their own authority rather than the authority of the Scriptures. Okay, I would argue today that when you hear a preacher or a teacher teach from the scriptures the truth, you're hearing that that you're hearing teaching with authority. When you hear people water it down, compromise it, or mix it with tradition, you're hearing the same thing that people in Jesus' day were used to hearing, right? The religious leaders, you know, they loopholes for everything, right? All the added rules and regulations that they added to it. I mean, they, they're, they're legalism, you know, and so that's all they're used to hearing. And Jesus shows up, and he's actually teaching Scripture, and they've never heard anything like that before. They're amazed because he can teach with authority. And so, you know, he can draw a crowd, but 
there's, there's some jealousy there, you know, between, between the religious leaders because the people, you'll notice they constantly come to Jesus. They're not coming to the religious leaders, you know. And the religious leaders had a problem with John too. If you remember, they, they questioned his baptism. Well, who's, who gave you the authority, right? It's not about what he's doing. It's under whose authority are you doing it under? Is it God or man's? They, see, you know, we didn't tell you you could do this. So how, how dare you do it? That's, that was the issue. And so, and, and then of course John told them they needed to repent. And so that made John public enemy number one until Jesus also told them they needed to repent. These are the only two guys that have ever looked these guys in the face and said, you guys have sinned too. Right? And so that's, that's an issue. And so Jesus is teaching and he's drawing these crowds. And so, you know, he's at this point again where the people show up to teach. And there's, there's a bit of a lesson there maybe, maybe worth thinking about. The only people you can teach are people who want to be taught. I've been in congregations before where the people don't want to be taught. They'll show up sometimes, but even when they show up, they don't want to be taught. You can't teach them. You can, I mean, it doesn't matter what you do, you can't teach them. The only people you can teach are people who want to be taught. And so here Jesus has people willing to listen, and so he, he's teaching. Verse 3 and 4, here's what it says. The scribes and the Pharisees, they brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, that's important. It, it, it's not a woman they say has been caught in adultery. She has matter-of-factly, been caught in the deed, right? That's the Scripture tells us that, not just the Pharisees. And so the scribes and the Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. So that's, in this account, that's not the issue. At no point are, is that a question or is that up for grabs or we can sit here and debate what, did she actually do the deed or not? She's guilty, okay? So understand that. She is 100% guilty. So they brought a woman caught in adultery and then set her in the center of the court. Verse 4, they said to him, teacher... This woman has been caught in adultery in the very act. Okay, now, they're going to start asking some questions. And it's important that we understand what Jesus understands, is that is we need to see through the questions, okay? They aren't looking for truth here. They're not trying to figure out what the right thing to do is. They're not looking for advice. Okay, this, this is a trap, and... Like I said, in John chapter 7, just, I mean, the chapter before this, the religious leaders, they sent officers into the temple to seize him, and now, they're, now they can't. And so now they've got this plan to try to trap him. And one of the reasons they can't just take him out is because he's too popular. You know, every time he does show up, he draws a crowd. And, and so, you know, he's, he's a pretty popular guy. But who brings the woman? The Pharisees and the scribes. First off, they should know what to do with this woman. You understand that? They, they know, right? They, they should, they are, the, I mean, that's their job. I mean, they, they make it their point to know what the law says. And so, again, they're not interested in, in what's right. If you're, go to chapter 7, look at verse 20. This is just one example here. <clears throat> look, look at verse 19. Did not Moses give you the law, and yet none of you carry out the law? Why do you seek to kill me? And the crowd answered, you have a demon who seeks to kill you. Uh, you know, I mean, they're saying he's demon-possessed in chapter 7. And now they, they come up, and, and what are they calling him in, uh, in verse, uh, verse 4? What do they call him in, in John 8, verse 4? Teacher. Now, yesterday they called him demon-possessed, and today they're saying, oh, teacher, we got a question. If you ever were picked on at school, 
by some sort of a bully or and then all of a sudden that kid starts acting real nice to you what does that mean is he wanting to be your friend <laughs> it's a trap okay it's a trap Right? When the people that normally don't like you all of a sudden are buttering you up, something's up, right? I mean, you, red flag, you should be paying attention. These guys don't like Jesus. They don't want him around, but now they come up, hey, teacher, you know, give us some insight. And so, you know, you weren't worth, you know, th these are Jesus' enemies, guys. They've been looking, again, they've been looking for a way to kill him since they, they healed the man at Bethesda in John chapter 5. I mean, the intentions were very clear all the way back there. And so, here's their question, okay? Verse, uh, verse 5. Now, in the law, Moses commands us to stone such a woman. Okay. To be a Pharisee, there are various qualifications that one had to go through. One of those qualifications was to memorize the first five books of the Old Testament. Not to know it, not to study it, not to sit through school in it, not to take a test on it, but to memorize Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now those are hard books just to read, <laughs> but they memorized them. Okay, now these are those guys. That's what they did. How far into those five books do you have to get before you start figuring out what to do with this woman who's been caught in adultery? Well, it's there in Exodus chapter 20 where the commandments are, are written in stone, right? We see, we see it there. Let's turn to Leviticus chapter 20. Okay, and let's look at verse 10. It says, if there is a man who commits adultery with another man's wife, one who commits adultery with his friend's wife, the adulterer and the adulteress shall surely be put to death. Now they memorized that. And if they missed it, let's go to Deuteronomy chapter 22. In verse 22, Deuteronomy 22, 22, if a man is found lying with a married woman... Both of them shall die, the man who lay with the woman and the woman. Thus you shall purge the evil from Israel. Okay, so do they know what to do with this woman? Yeah, I mean, we can't, we, you know, again, I ain't got a problem with ignorance, but they can't claim it, right? They can't say that they didn't know. So they come to Jesus fully aware of what the Bible says, exactly what the law says to do, and they say, Jesus, we've got, and they admit that. They say the law of Moses says to kill this woman, right? And so that's, that's what they're looking at. So they know what the Bible says. Why then is this even a question? You ever hear people do that today? Well, I know what the Bible says, but I want to know what you think. What does it matter what I think? Is that going to change anything? You ever seen, I've seen congregations vote on what the Bible says. You've seen that before? Yeah, two-thirds vote, you can override the Bible. I don't know if you knew that. So... <laughs> Yeah, you gotta have a board meeting and you know, yeah, all that, yeah. But you you can you can rewrite the Bible. You can amend it with your bylaws if you're if you know what you're doing, okay? Um, you can't, by the way, that's sarcasm. <laughs> Just wanna make sure no one no one reads into that the wrong way. Uh, but yeah, we see this sometimes. People will say, Well, I know what the Bible says, but 
you know, and then they'll start, well, what do you think? Or my, my friend says, or my preacher told me, you know, and so it's, if the Bible says what we don't want it to say, most people can weasel their way around it one way or the other. And, and, but anyway, these guys are doing the same thing. They know this is what the Bible says. Now, you know, what do you think? And so here's the thing. They know the answer, what they're actually looking, they want Jesus to contradict it, right? That's what they're looking for. See, because if Jesus says, hey, just kill the woman, right, then they go to Rome and they, because they're not allowed to, they're not allowed to execute that kind of judgment on anybody. So if Jesus says, kill the woman, all they got to do is go to Rome and, and say, hey, that guy's wanting to kill people. He's wanting to execute people for breaking the Jewish law and Rome's got him, okay? If he says, let her go, then he can point everyone to Jesus and say, Jesus says we don't have to follow the law of Moses anymore, right? And so that's the trap, okay? That's the trap. Now, <clears throat> Here's the thing. We just read Leviticus 20, verse 10, and we read Deuteronomy 22, 22, okay? And is anyone at either of those still? Has anyone got any of those open right now? Everybody turned and turned away from it already? Okay, let's go back to Deuteronomy. I don't care which one. Somebody got one of them? Katie, you got it? Go ahead and read whichever one you got. Which one is it? Okay, Deuteronomy 22, 22. Okay, so we all heard that? Okay. <clears throat> the Pharisees brought the woman. They know what the law says. What's missing? The man's not there, right? I mean, everything that we read says if, if someone is caught in adultery, okay, that the man and the woman are to be killed. Man and the woman. And let's go back to John 8. It says, the scribes and Pharisees brought a woman caught in adultery. Now, how do you catch a woman in adultery by herself? Takes two to tango, guys. Right? And so, where is the man? That's a question worth looking into. Okay? So, <clears throat> now, again, the woman was caught in the act. Bible says that. Uh, but again, the question is, where's the guy? So, we've heard the phrase before that the end justifies the means. That's kind of what's going on here. You know, whatever it takes to accomplish whatever it is we want to seek. People in the church do this all the time. We'll sacrifice truth to get to our goal all the time. People do it in the church. Uh, people do it with the plan of salvation. You know, we want to we get this person saved, but he doesn't really want to repent. And so we'll, we'll fudge that a little bit, get him in baptized in the water, and then we think we accomplished something. Did we accomplish anything? No, yeah, we got the guy wet, and now he thinks he's fine, and, but he still needs salvation. You see what I mean? That's a problem. So, you know, we, we do this with churches will set goals to just fill the pews because we need a bunch of people, and, you know, and, and what we need is a person in every seat. That becomes the goal. It doesn't matter how we do it. We'll change the way we preach. We'll stop preaching about sin. We won't call people to repent. We won't stand on the Word of God. Does a lot of people justify compromising the Scripture? Never, never. You know, we really got to be careful when, when the church starts sitting back trying to, de to define what success looks like and what does it mean to, to, to act, you know, what goals are we actually trying to accomplish. My goal is to never compromise the truth. My goal is to make sure that we are the people of God, the church that Jesus Christ established, you know. And if that's five people, then that's five people. If it's 20 people, it's 20. If it's 2,000, so be it. But the goal was not a bunch of people. The goal, goal is to preach the Word of God 
to stand on it and to be uncompromising and unwavering with it. Um, here in John 8, these guys want Jesus so badly. You know, we'll use Rome if we have to. We'll use our own law if we have to. And, and you know, again, you see people do that. They're a Christian when it's convenient. They're worldly when they're convenient. But the timing is awfully convenient here. Jesus you know, is confronted with this crowd right in front of him the day after they tried to seize him and it didn't go so well. And so, you know, may, I don't know, maybe the man's one of them. You know, maybe, maybe this is entrapment. Maybe one of the Pharisees, uh, you know, slept with the woman so that they could say, hey, we caught her in the act. Let's take her to Jesus. I, you know, I, I don't know what happened, but the, the point is she's being used as bait and for whatever reason, the man's getting off scot-free here, okay? And so that's a problem. And so let's look at verse 6 and 7. It says, They were saying this, says, testing him, so that they might have grounds for accusing him. But Jesus stooped down, and with his finger he wrote in the ground. Uh, when they persisted in asking him, he straightened up and said, He who is without sin among you, let him be first to throw a stone at her. Um, Jesus is giving the Pharisees an opportunity to stone this woman. I mean, that's what he says. You know, anybody here without sin, you go right ahead. You're welcome. You can pick up your stones. You can, uh, you can throw them at this woman until she's dead. And so he gives her opportunity. What we need to see is, is that there's still one individual in this crowd who meets the criteria to stone this woman to death. And who's that? Jesus. Jesus could have absolutely... I mean, we, we get this idea that they start dropping their rocks and, and, the, and the Pharisees walk out of here. Jesus could have picked all of them back up, walked right over to this woman and killed her. And he would have been justified in doing so by the law of Moses and by the criteria he himself sets here. Is it fair? Now, every one of us wants to say no. <laughs> is it fair, though? Yeah, it is fair. That's what the law said, right? And so Jesus could have killed this woman and it would have been that that's what she deserved because she broke the law. But it's also what all of us deserve, right? I'm, I'm you know, understand that. That's what these, it's what these Pharisees deserved also. Now, I, you know, again, it says in verse 80, stooped down, he wrote on the ground. I, I don't know what he wrote, guys. I'm not going to sit here and speculate. I, I've heard sermon after sermon where people speculate. I mean, they'll spend more time talking about what he wrote. On the, I mean, he could have wrote the words to the hokey pokey for all I... I don't know, and there's no way for us to know. You know, uh, I have no idea what he wrote in the ground, and so I don't know that... It, we don't know because it doesn't matter. Uh, speculations can be dangerous. Scripture builds faith. Speculations build doubt. Verse 9 through 11, it says, When they heard it, they began to go out one by one, beginning with the older ones, and he was left alone with the woman where she was in the center of the court. Straightening up, Jesus said to her, Woman, uh, where are they? Did no one condemn you? Okay, she said, No one, Lord. And Jesus said, I do not condemn you either. Go from now on and sin no more. Why didn't the crowd stick around? <laughs> They're all guilty. Their own conscience convicted them, right? I mean, you, again, Jesus, they confronted him in John 7 the day before, and now they come with him and they think they've got this, they think, they think they've got it. I mean, we've got the perfect trap. And any answer he gives us, 
we, we, can, pull, we can say he's wrong. And, uh, and Jesus starts bringing up, I mean, you ever, you ever see someone leave a church because they don't like what was being preached? Okay, that's what's going on here. Okay, what is Jesus preaching on? Their sins. I mean, they've got to be running the calculations, figuring out what's coming next. I don't, I don't want to stick around for that. And so they walk away. You know, I don't want him calling me out. I don't want him getting that personal with me right now. And so they walk out of here. And, you know, Jesus just opened a huge can of worm on these guys, you know, and, and, and they're, all, they're all running away. But you've got to understand, too, this is exactly the reason they hate him. You know, I said a while back, you know, I've always, especially when I'm talking to kids, like, who are the Pharisees? And I, I try to compare them to like a religious police officer, but not a good one, okay? They really were, they're self-appointed, okay? They, they don't have authority by God. They're self-appointed. And they, they really think their job is to pull people over for breaking the law, their law and God's law, you know, more so their traditions than God's law. And, you know, I've, I've said before, you've, you've, you, we've all seen a police officer speed, We've, I've never seen a police officer pulled over for speeding. These guys have sinned just like everybody else had, but no one pulls them over. No one, no one calls them out on it except for two guys. John the Baptist did and Jesus did, and they were both hated severely for it to the point where, you know, they're going to plot and try to kill Jesus. And so, um, and so they, you know, they don't want to stick around for this, and so they leave. Now the woman... How do you think she's how do you think she sees Jesus at this moment? Again, she as soon as they leave, Jesus hadn't spoke to her yet. I mean, rescue her or here's the executioner. You know, I don't who knows? You know, I, I would be scared. You know, uh, before he opened his mouth and said, you know, I don't condemn you either, I would have been scared to death because here's Jesus not walking away and I don't think this guy's ever done anything wrong and uh, here's all these rocks and I know that I've been caught in the deed and so why, you know, G she was probably, I, she ought to be scared. But I'm telling you that there's a whole world out there today who is stuck in their sins and there ought to be a fear of God in their life. And there is no fear of God today. That's a problem. Jesus tells this woman, again, he's the only threat at the moment, but he tells this woman, go and sin no more. And this, this is the perfect illustration of the difference between law and mercy and grace because the nature of the law doesn't allow for a second chance here. The nature of the Old Testament law doesn't give her a clean slate the, the, nowhere in the law do they get to a point where God can say, I don't condemn you either, right? All the law, and, and, and we're going to talk about this a little bit here in a minute, but the law doesn't give a way out. You know, the, the minute that you have sinned, you're guilty for the rest of your life and you're reminded of that sin every year. The, the only forgiveness you get is temporary. And again, there's no freedom from it. There's no release from that guilt. It's just a reminder of what you've done. Even if, you know, from the, from the time you're 13 in the Jewish community forward, you're responsible for, your, for yourself and, for, and accountable for your sins. And, 
even if you only sin one time and when you're 13 years old and you, man, maybe you disrespect mom and dad, you're 60 years old, you're still dealing with the guilt of that. You don't get away from it. Time doesn't heal these wounds. You understand? Like this sin and this guilt is on you for the rest of your life. You can you get that atonement of the, the animal sacrifices will push it a year in, the, in advance, but you know you can mark it on a calendar when we got to come back and do this again next year because those sins aren't taken away. They're not forgotten. And, you know, under Understanding mercy, you have to appreciate the law that God gave us first in order to understand why mercy and grace is such a big deal. And so a second chance and an expectation. And I want us to see that the mercy that's offered here is a second chance and an expectation. It's not just a get out of jail free card. It's not I forgive you, go do whatever you want. It's no condemnation for this. But here's what I expect from you. Go and sin no more. Jesus didn't do all this and offer her a second chance just to have her wind up in the same place all over again. It's a second chance to do things differently this time. Jude, we're told, mercy be multiplied unto you. You understand we're dealing with a church that's going apostate. They're going in the wrong direction, right? They're walking away from the very things that they need to be walking toward. And so mercy means that it doesn't matter how far gone they are, they can always come back. As long as they still got breath in them, I mean, there's opportunity there to do the right thing and repent. And so it's, uh, it's, they can still change course, they can still change their destination, but that's, that's the idea. But don't confuse mercy with, well, I'm getting away with it. Because that's not what it is. Mercy comes with an expectation that we're going to do things differently. And so in this situation, mercy's offered, but that sin's not ignored. It's addressed. It's dealt with. And we've got, a, you know, in our modern church movement, whatever you want to call it, we've got an issue where we want to, we want to offer mercy and grace to everybody without any expectation and certainly without addressing sin to begin with. I can tell you this, if, if, if my boys were in trouble and I could bail them out, I would do it. If I could sit down and have a heart-to-heart -heart with them and put on them the pressing challenge that they're not going to put themselves in that situation ever again. You, you, you get what I'm saying? Like, you know, that kind of help, that kind of love has to come with this expectation that together we're going to move in a different direction from this. We're not going to go back to this again. Right? And so the Lord wants the same thing out of us. So this mercy is not just a, well, we just won't count that one. Go do whatever you want. It's, it's forgiveness, but it comes with this expectation. Mercy has an expectation. And I know we don't want expectations. We think that uh, love is supposed to be unconditional, but you read the Bible, there's plenty of conditions in here. So uh, let's take a quick break. And then uh, when we jump back, we're going to dive into grace specifically. And then love, if we got time, if we have time but uh, the grace will lead into the peace uh, it's kind of hard to get to the one without the other okay um, <clears throat> all right let's go to John chapter 1 let's go to John chapter 1 um, <clears throat> we're gonna we're gonna start we're gonna get into grace a bit which I know is not even there mentioned in Jude, but like I said, it's, it goes along with mercy. And mercy, you know, mercy is easier. I shouldn't say it's easier. It seems like we got a better grasp of mercy in the church than we do with grace. Grace 
is one of those religious-y terms that we throw around all the time, and it really has just become a word that means whatever people think it ought to mean. And, and it's, it gets real, it just gets real confusing uh, the way people use it and, and trying to pinpoint what it means. Um, you know, I mean, I've heard people act like grace is just going to cover anything they do so they can do whatever they want. I mean, they turn it into what Jude says is a, a license to sin, a, you know, a, a, you know a, a license of immorality. And so they really think, well, that's what Jesus died for. And so, you know, is for my sin, so I might as well sin. And it's, it's like there's so much scripture that talks about how that attitude is just an insult to the grace of God. And it's trampling underfoot the blood of, of, of Christ and those sorts of things. Um, you know, I've, I've heard grace... Um, used as what I call umbrella theory or theology, you know, where grace is like this big umbrella over your head, and so when God looks down while you're sinning, he just don't see it anymore. All he sees is this umbrella that's covering you, and that's the grace. Have you ever heard that before? I mean, I've heard that in bunches of places before. It's like God just can't see it anymore. Um, I've heard it explained that the grace of God is like God just putting on the blood-colored glasses, and so, again, doesn't see your sin anymore. All he sees, you know, God's not ignorant, Okay, and, and you know, it's, he's not going to fool himself into, well, I'm just going to pretend that, you know, that that person's not doing what they're doing, right? That's not how, how it works. Um, and I think we, you know, we covered a bit of that with understanding mercy. It comes with this expectation that things are going to change, right? That things are going to be going to be different from this point on because we've experienced this mercy from God. Um, and so... John chapter 1, we're going we're gonna to tie these things in together a little bit more, but John chapter 1, verse 17, the law is given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. So, <clears throat> grace and truth aren't realized under the law. Um, grace and truth are realized through Christ. And However, we do see in this verse there is a connection to the law. And, and so you can't understand or appreciate grace without understanding the nature of the law. And we saw that with the woman at the well. Like that's not the woman at the well. The woman caught in adultery. And I'll probably call it the woman at the well again because I, I even wrote it in my notes that way. And it's like, I know that's not the story we're talking about. Um, the woman caught in adultery. Um, but, you know, it's, it's this idea that, you know, we, we've gotten to this point. We, we hit this with the tabernacle class where, like, instead of just saying we're Christians, now we've kind of coined a new, new term. We, we say we're New Testament Christians, you know. And it's like, well, there's not Old Testament Christians, so maybe we should just be Christians, you know. But the mentality of it gets wrapped up into this idea that I don't need the Old Testament. Now, we know that that's not necessarily true because, you know, we've been through the other studies before. But turn to Galatians chapter 3, just as a reminder. Oh boy, I brought the Bible with Galatians ripped up. I've been, I have been using my new one. I just don't, I just don't like it. Um, oh, I've, I think we're good. I've still got it in here. I can't go any further than verse 24, but that's all I need. Oh, no, I can't. No, I can't. I'll have to have someone read that for me. Galatians 3, 24. Yeah, so I mean, there, there's a there's a point to the law. It's to help to help bring us to Christ. So there's there's a you know, it's not like we can just pretend the law didn't exist. It's not like we can afford to not ever study it or to read it. You know, and again, I think this class we had last week with Darren was evidence of that. I mean, there's so many ties in the New Testament to the things that are going on in the Old Testament that you know the reason things get so out of hand with these end time prophecies and the things going on in Israel and stuff is because 
we read the Old Testament, we don't recognize that it's already been fulfilled in the New Testament, and so we kind of run wild with these things. But the law is there to, to help us understand these things. And so, but let's, let's talk about the nature of the law itself. Okay, the law of Moses, the law that was realized through Moses. Basically, I'm just going to divide it into two categories. You've got laws of morality. Okay, don't cheat, don't steal, don't murder, don't commit adultery. A lot of them have to do with your relationships with people. Okay, and so there's a lot of, of morality laws, and that's just that. They're laws about our morals. Okay, those things exist. Those things are basically written on our conscience as well. I mean, we kind of know before it was etched in stone that I shouldn't kill everybody and kind of knew that I shouldn't lie and cheat and steal. Those aren't honorable things in any civilization, in any society. But we got them written down in the law. And then there's another set of laws there that is um, what we're going to call ceremonial. You know, these are laws about worship, um, about um, dietary rules, um, you know, sacrifices, uh, priesthood, uh, the tabernacle, the furnishings of the tabernacle, uh, the procedures of the feast days and the holy days and all of those sorts of things. And so these are ceremonial laws that in one way or another are trying to, <coughs> trying to, push the idea that God and his people are holy, which means to be what? Set apart, right? They're set apart. They're sanctified. They're different than the rest of the world. And so one way or another, God's trying to impose that idea on his people through those ceremonial laws, um, you know, in their everyday life. And Isaiah chapter 42, let's turn there real quick. Isaiah 42, we're going to look at verse 6. It says, I am the Lord, for Isaiah 42, 6, I am the Lord, I've called you in righteousness. I will also hold you by the hand and watch over you, and I will appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Now, you know, I, that word nations, you know, it's the same word as Gentiles. Um, you know, it can be translated either way, but the idea is that Israel, God set up a physical covenant, covenant with these regulations and rules and these laws with the physical people of Israel through the Old Testament so that he could demonstrate to the rest of the world what it meant to serve God and what it meant to be God's people. And so, you know, that's, that's the idea. He's demonstrating a people who are set apart through these, through these rules. Now, Here's what happened with that. Let's, let's go back to Galatians. I'm sorry we're, we're flipping around in so many places. Um, back to chapter 3, but I just, I just want to look at verse 10. And I have that one. <laughs> Galatians chapter 3 and verse 10. Here's, here, here's the problem. <clears throat> it says, For as many are of the works of the law are under a curse. For it's written, Cursed is everyone who does not abide by all the things written in the book of the law to perform them. Right? And so the Bible says that the law became a curse. Now, there's nothing wrong with the law. The law came from God. It's not like sometimes we treat the law like another form of denominationalism or something. And, and you know, and certainly false teaching crept in by trying to blend the law with, with our faith in, in the New Testament. But the law itself, like, there, it's not, there's nothing wrong with it. It came from God. But it became a curse a curse because of man's inability to to abide by it. And so the idea is, you know, as soon as you broke 
any part of it, you're guilty of breaking the whole thing, and nobody was able to live by all of it, and so everybody became accursed under it. And what that means is that, you know, the rather than teaching people how to live righteously, it just it just kind of made them aware of their sin and then was like a spotlight on their sin for the rest of their life that they couldn't get out from under. And so it's a, it's a sign over their head saying you're not good enough. And that's where you stand with God. And so that's what the law became. And we've mentioned this before. The law did a good job of, of outlining sin, of outlining how holy and righteous God is and, and seeing the expectations that God has for people. But it, 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 it showed everyone their problems but the law had no solution for the problem. Like, it didn't fix it. Nobody got better under the law. And because it was physical, people could abide by it to some extent and be pretty horrible people. You know, I mean, you, you can go to the feast days and you can bring your sacrifices. I mean, you can go through the... Mo- it, it, was a, it was a system that allowed for legalism to take place where you could go through the motions and your heart could be far away from God. Okay, now God didn't design it for that way. It's just it was a system that allowed for that to happen. You know that, that people could could turn that into it. So, anyway, one way or another, you know, the law had the you know outlined your problems, you know, but it did not did not fix the problem. And so, law had no room for second chances and no room for repentance. Um, law was just a one shot, one mistake, and then you're always reminded of it. And it showed also that the consequences of those sins are pretty severe. Okay, required blood to be shed. And so, you know, year after year, you see these animals uh, being brought in and sacrificed. But according to Hebrews chapter 10, verse 4, what did those sacrifices accomplish? The Bible says the bloods of, uh, blood of bulls and goats couldn't take away their sin. Right? And so, but like I said, it did show that there's a pretty steep consequence um, because of their sin, that there's a cost, that there's a price. And so, in John chapter 8, you know, with the, the woman caught in adultery, we see the problem with the law. Jesus could have killed that woman. That's the law. And you, want, you need to understand, too, that Jesus could have lived under the law and not sinned a single time and still not helped anybody, still never preached a message, still never healed anybody, and never die on the cross. I mean, Jesus could have lived under the law without sin, without breaking a single part of it, and still not done any of those things. Right? And so, you know, and still, you know, again, without dying on the cross, he still could have lived underneath the law. Turn to Romans chapter 8. Verse 2 here in Romans 8. For the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus has set you free from the law of sin and of death. Okay? See that contrast? The law of Spirit of life versus what? The law of sin and death. Okay? Pretty sharp contrast here, you know, between the two. Uh, you, see it, you see it even more if you turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 3. Listen to some of the language here that's used regarding this, this law, this Old Testament law. <clears throat> Just start in verse 1 here. Are we beginning to... We're in 2 Corinthians 3. Are we beginning to commend ourselves again, or do we need as some letters of commendation to you or from you, 
You are our letter written in our hearts, known and read by all men, being manifested that you are a letter of Christ, cared for by us, written not with ink, but with the Spirit of the living God, not on tablets of stone, but on tablets of human hearts. Such confidence we have through Christ toward God, not that we are adequate in ourselves to consider anything is coming from ourselves, but our adequacy is from God. Listen to this, who also made us adequate as servants of a new covenant. Not of the letter, but of the Spirit. For the letter kills, the Spirit gives life. Listen to this, if the ministry of death in letters engraved on stones came with glory, so that the sons of Israel could not look intently at the face of Moses because of the glory of his face fading as it was, how would the ministry of the Spirit fail to be even more with glory? For if the ministry of condemnation has glory, much more does the ministry of righteousness abound in glory. For indeed what had glory in this case has no glory because of the glory that surpasses it. Tremendous chapter. I mean, it's worth going through the whole thing. But how's the, how's the law, the Old Testament law referred to? Ministry of death? Ministry of condemnation? The letter that kills? As compared to what? The, the spirit and freedom and life, you see? You know, John 10.10, 10, Jesus said, I came to give life and that they may have it abundantly. So, you know, the spirit brings life and freedom and the law brought death, condemnation, right? That's, that's what it did. And so you see that played out in Exodus chapter 32. You know, the, the day the law comes, right? Moses is on the mountain and what were the people doing? Yeah, they got that cow that just came out of the fire, you know. Nobody just it came out that way. And I'm uh, still not sure how he got away with that. Aaron did. But anyway, <laughs> uh, yeah, and God ain't happy with that, you know. I mean, he's not happy with that. And you can go back and, and look in Exodus chapter 32. Uh, well, let's, let's just turn there real quick. Exodus 32. Okay, verse 26, 27, 28 here. It says, Then Moses stood in the gate of the camp and said, Whoever is for the Lord, come to me. And all the sons of Levi gathered to him. He said to them, Thus says the Lord, the God of Israel, Every man of you put a sword upon his thigh. Go back and forth from gate to gate in the camp. Kill every man his brother, every man his friend, every man his neighbor. Verse 28, So the sons of Levi did as Moses instructed. And about 3,000 men of the people fell that day. So the day the law... I mean, it's a, the law is a ministry of death and condemnation. The day it came, how many people died? 3,000 people died the day the, the, the law was given. And then you contrast that with, with the day the Spirit was given in Acts chapter 2. Okay, the terms of pardon are offered. As many as received the word were baptized, and how many were added? 3,000. Now, you think that's coincidence? The day the law came, 3,000 people died. The day the Spirit came, faith in Christ could be realized that we could be a part of the, of the, of the, of the gospel, of the, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, and 3,000 people were given spiritual life that day. Right? Forgiven, redeemed, atoned for. And so, the law of Spirit versus the law of sin and death. And so, the point is, when we start talking about mercy and we start talking about grace... It, it has to be in view of understanding what we have without it, right? What we have without it is a ministry of death and ministry of condemnation. What we have without it is just the law. And what the law, what we, what's fair and what's deserving is us in the same, same boat as that woman at the well and, you know, deserving of death. And so, well, <clears throat> keep that in mind as we look at, at grace because, again, 
you know, what we do with grace, man, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a twisted topic in the church. It's, uh, it's like, you know, I had a sermon a while back when grace goes wild, and it's just <laughs> all the things that grace has turned into over the years, and uh, it just, it, it, it just, it's so, so weird what we do theologically with this. But turn, turn to Titus chapter 2. We have a, a biblical um, definition here of grace. And this is where we need to go. When people want to talk about grace, this, this is where we need to go. I mean, highlight this, underline this, jot it down in the back of your Bible somewhere. But when people want to talk about grace, this is the biblical, the biblical uh, concept of grace is explained for us in Titus chapter 2 in verses 11 through 14. And I, I, don't, I don't know a lot of people that talk about this, um, but this, this makes it pretty clear. Okay, Titus chapter 2, 11 through 14. When you're there, say got it. All right. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation to all men, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desire and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Christ Jesus who gave Himself for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for Himself a people for His own possession, zealous for good deeds. The grace of God that appeared was Christ Jesus. Has appeared. Not, well, you know, I felt it. Not that, you know, I got this warm, fuzzy feeling one day when I prayed or when I came out of the baptistry. The grace of God has for a fact shown up and appeared. Okay? And so, the grace of God that appeared was Christ Jesus. In Romans chapter 6, verse 23, you know, the wages of sin are death, but the free gift is what? Through Christ is eternal life. And so grace picks up where the law leaves off. Right? Grace... And is the answer to, to what the law found as the problem. And what does it do? According to Titus, it brought salvation. Now, here's the thing. It doesn't, what it does it not do. Okay, it doesn't bring you a clean bill of health. Grace of God's not going to cure my cancer. I, I don't have cancer, but you get, you know, the grace of God's not going to, to, to heal my physical ailments. Grace of God's not going to get me out of financial ruin or financial debt. Uh, grace of God isn't going to, you, you know what I mean? The things that people seem to think the grace of God's going to do is it, what it does is bring salvation, eternal salvation. That's what the grace of God does. And, and then it comes with instructions. Look at this again, verse 11 and 12. The grace of God has appeared, number one, bringing salvation to all men, and then what? Instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. When? Now. Not, well, when I die. That's the thing that, and we're going to talk more about this in Jude, but there's this idea, and, and I mean, just I'll just, just kind of open the can of worms. We'll, we'll really open it in a couple weeks. But there's this idea that's like, we know that one day we're, we're going to be in heaven and there's not going to be any sin but we, we, we act like we can live however we want now and that somehow God's just going to change us. Darren had a good sermon two, a year ago. He came and, and he had a 
sermon called uh, what was based off that old Eric Clapton song Tears in Heaven uh, there's a line in there if, if, uh, if I saw you in heaven would I know your name you know that's the idea and uh, so he, he actually asked me I played the song and then he preached on the sermon on the, on the, on the you know but this idea was if you didn't have any sin would I, would I even know you like would you be the same person without sin in your life, well, I mean, would you be the same person without your jealousy, without your gossip, without your, your you know, all the things that are in your life? I mean, if you took your sin away from you, would you even be the same person? And, and of course, the idea is that, like, we get this idea in our head, heaven's going to be without sin, okay? And then, then comes the question, are we going to have free will in heaven? And, and, I mean, it's really worth thinking about. It's like, you know, why, why, why would you not be sinning in heaven if you ain't got a problem sinning here? You know, I know we won't be in the flesh anymore, but we can't assume that that's the only problem. We know that there were angels that sinned in heaven without flesh. So anyway, just we'll, we'll get to that in a couple weeks. There's some things there that are, are worth thinking about. But the instruction from the grace of God, the grace of God is supposed to instruct us, teach us, lead us, right, to a point where we deny ungodliness and worldly desires. Now what does that mean? Well, it certainly doesn't, well, here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean I just do whatever I want. And God's grace is going to cover it. That, that, that doesn't fit here. Right? The grace of God leads me, teaches me, instructs me to deny worldly desires and, and to, to, to deny ungodliness in my life. It's not a mystical thing. Right? It's, it's not, it's not poof and your sin's gone. And, and we hear that today too. Well, you've, you're struggling with sin. Just give it to God. That's the most unhelpful thing. Like, what does that even mean? You have to overcome stuff. I mean, the Bible will help you. God will help you. You have to learn how to overcome things. God won't just take it away. You've got to learn how to... He'll give you the tools to do it. But like, you have to, you have to participate. I mean, walking in the Spirit is a cooperation between the Christian and the Holy Spirit in this world, in this life. You know, God's not going to... The Holy Spirit isn't like possession. It doesn't just take over and, and force you to do this or not to do that. It doesn't work that way. And we'll, we'll talk, I think we're going to get into the Holy Spirit study I think when Jude's over, I, I'm not 100% sure, but we need to get into that. It's a great study, very encouraging study. Um, but, but the grace of God's going to instruct us to, to, to live differently. Uh, it's going to lead us out of, un, out of ungodliness and worldly desires. And so, well, you know, let's just be practical about that. How's, how's it going to have to do that? I mean, if I'm living a worldly life and I'm feeding ungodly desires in my life, how is the grace of God, which came, which appeared through Jesus Christ, right, how am I going to be taught out of that? What's going to have to change? <laughs> Chris is not wrong. <laughs> I'm going to have to change. I'm going to change the way I think, though, ain't I? I mean, it's about changing my value system and the things that are important to me and the way that I view myself. And we talked about repentance. Uh, you know, I don't know. It feels like wasn't that long ago. Was it a while ago? It was more than a couple weeks ago. It was back before Christmas. We spent some time on repentance. And... Um, and, you know, again, it's about changing how we think about things. Right? It's about changing our whole perception um, and, and moving on differently. So anyway, the grace of God is going to lead us out of that. It's going to also teach us to live sensibly or to be sensible. Okay, and so well, what does that mean? What does it mean to be, you know, uh, some translations will have to be sound mind or sober minded. So what does that mean? Because if we want to identify and define the grace of God, that's, this is part of it. To instruct me to live with a sober mind or a sound mind. How, how, what, what's that look like? What's the opposite of a sound mind or a sober mind? <laughs> Jeremy pointed, by the way, if you missed it. 
crazy chaotic? Did you say fuzzy? Fuzzy? <laughs> like hazy? Like, okay. I'm thinking fuzzy like a puppy or something. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, chaotic, uh, unstable. How about that? Unstable, uncertain, you know, un- inconsistent. Uncontrolled, very good. Yeah, uncontrolled, yeah, without control. So, yeah, so it's, it's got to lead me away from that, right? And so uh, the grace of God then is going to have to impart some sort of discipline and some sort of structure into my life. Then, and so, you know, and you guys understand these things aren't mystical things, right? I mean, this is, these are practical things from the Word of God that's going to have to be imparted to me, and I have to participate in that to realize the grace of God in my life. This is, this is part of this. Um, so that Christian transformation is going to have to start in my mind. It's, I, I do, I'm going to have to in, change the way I think. And the grace of God is going to instruct us on how to think through the Word of God. And so we think about Romans chapter 12, verse 2, not to be conformed to this world, but to be transformed how? Renewing of our mind, right? Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, have this mind in you that's also in Christ Jesus. And so, you know, the, the grace of God is going to teach us how to think differently. And then it says to live righteously. So uh, that's a life that is upright, right? That's, that's lived upright. And so, you know, I think about Noah who was righteous in his time and, you know, in, in, uh, you know a, a, against all odds, you know, there was one guy that was righteous in his time. And like, we need to learn how to be righteous in our time. It's a, it's a hard time to be righteous but we need to learn how to do that. And so uh, righteousness has specifically to do with the fruit we're producing. Okay, and Matthew chapter 7 has a lot to say about that. You know, good trees produce good fruit and good trees uh, don't produce bad fruit and any tree that doesn't produce good fruit is cut down and burned up. And so, um, you know, thinking sensibly will lead to doing things right. You know, we, we, we can talk a lot about walking in the flesh or walking in the spirit, but... Your mind directs your steps. So to walk in the Spirit, you have to be thinking spiritually. If you're going to walk in the flesh, it's because you're thinking worldly, right? And so the, the grace of God is going to lead us out of those things, um, teach us to get out of those things. Um, and it says also in Titus chapter 2 there, you know, that uh, we're going to, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires, to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age, okay? Okay. <clears throat> What does it mean to live a godly life? I'm sorry? Okay, denying myself, sure, yeah. You know, it's, it's you know, again, we can look at what it's not. You know, if, if I say that somebody is unqualified, what are they missing? So if someone's ungodly, what's not a factor in their decision making? God's just not a part of what they're doing. That's, that's all that means, you know. And so to live a godly life means God's a part of what I'm doing. You know, I'm thinking about, you know, the Word of God and, and God and my decision-making and the things that I make important, you know, in, in whatever hierarchy of value that I'm, I'm basing my life off of. You know, God has to be a part of that. And so my goals, my speech, my attitude, the way that I sacrifice, you know, God's trying to produce godly character in our life and the grace of God will lead us to that. Um, and again, and it's going to teach us to do this in this present evil age. Okay, we can't use our society as an excuse. We can't say, well, the world's so bad. Uh, we can't say, well, but you don't know the people that I work with. We can't say, yeah, but you don't know the family that I'm with. Now, I, I get it. That, all that stuff makes it hard. If, you're, if you work with people that aren't Christians, if you have family that aren't Christians, I mean, that makes your life a lot harder. But it also makes your life shine a lot brighter in those situ- situations and those circumstances. You have a tremendous opportunity 
in those situations to be a, an example, to be that light, that city uh, on a hill, salt of the earth, that kind of stuff. And so point is, you know, we can live this way now, not wait till heaven to do it. And, you know, the, the worst advertisement for the Lord is, is Christians that don't live this way, right? I mean, that's, that's, the, <clears throat> that's the worst advertisement for Christ in these church that there is. Um, let's look at verse 13. Okay, it goes on here. He says uh, that, that the grace of God, you know, it has appeared. It brings salvation, instructing us to deny ungodliness, worldly desire to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. In verse 13, looking for the blessed hope and the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So, you know, the grace of God, where does it put our focus? Puts it upward, doesn't it? So the grace of God puts our focus on the things above, not on the things of earth. Sounds a lot like Colossians chapter 3. You know, yeah, same idea, right? And so, um, you know, I've, I've said, I, you know, I've, I've had a lot of Bible studies with people one-on-one, and, you know, people hurting. You know, people who are in the world, people who aren't in Christ, they, there's a lot of pain, brokenness, uh, a lot of mess there in their life. And one of the, one of the things that, that, you know, when people begin to get out of all of that and, and get into Christ, one of the things that, that comes up a lot is just how they talk about that peace, Okay, and, and it's almost like you can just kind of, like, the circumstances don't have to change. Like, they're still in the mess. I mean, they're not, they're not actively making a mess. But, I mean, you know, if they're, they've, they've got uh, broken relationships in their life, that doesn't, you know, becoming a Christian doesn't fix that. You know, if they've got addictions in their life, like, they're, you know, you don't become a Christian, just don't, don't have that addiction. And you know what I mean? Like, all those problems are there. They've still got to struggle with that stuff. They've got to fight those fights every single day. But all of a sudden, they're a Christian and their focus changes. And it's and once the focus changes, it's like that stuff's just not as loud anymore. It's like there's there's that's not all their life is anymore. That there's something else to it. And you know, you, you, when you start hearing that from pe- person after person after person, th- I mean, there's something to that, you know. And so this grace of God, it, you know, it, it changes our focus. It, it it puts our focus on the things where they should be. And so, you know, we have to look. I mean, where's the world? All the world looks for is problems. I mean, the world that we live in is just doom and gloom all the time, okay? Then for the Christian, we have, we have, we can look above that and beyond that. Uh, and so we have hope and, you know, we can look for the return of Jesus Christ, which is what we proclaim around the table every single week, right? We proclaim the Lord's death until he returns. The, you know, there's a focus on this return there. And so, you know, that's, that's the idea. And so we're, we're our perspective changes, um, you know, and, and our hope and, and the fact that he's coming back. And in verse 14, it says, who gave himself um, for us to redeem us from every lawless deed and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, zealous for good deeds. Okay, this is the reason that Christ gave himself up, to redeem us from all iniquity, right? So that we could be a people who belong to him and a people who are then zealous for what? Doing good, yeah, doing good deeds. Okay, and so that, that ought to be the result of the grace of God in our life. Now, how many people today claim to be in, the God, in God's grace, and, and, but their life is no different, right? I mean, you know, they're, they're still feeding worldly desires. Their focus is not on things that are eternal. Um, they're not zealous for doing good deeds, you know, those sorts of things. A lot of people can make a lot of claims there, but, you know, here, you know, we see what the grace of God's supposed to look like. And so if we can keep this biblical, scriptural definition of grace in the Bible, we eliminate a whole lot of really bad theology today that, that has really cheapened the idea of the grace of God and made it some sort of wishful thinking, magical star kind of thing that is just a, kind of a 
well, just leave it up to the grace of God will deal with it. The grace of God will cover it. And, you know, it's, it doesn't mean anything. It just doesn't mean anything. This means something, right? A lot to be thankful for, a lot to be grateful for. Um, <clears throat> real quick, let's, let's turn to, to 2 Peter chapter 1. I'm sorry, First, first Peter chapter 1. I did that just to give myself a little extra time to get there. So, no, I'm just kidding. Um, chapter 2, or verse 1, chapter 1, verse 2. <laughs> just somewhere, just pick a verse. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That's, thank you. Yeah. <laughs> so chapter 1, verse 2. All right, listen to this. According to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ, to be sprinkled with His blood. Listen to this. May grace and peace be yours to the fullest measure. I think the order of that's important. What comes first, grace or peace? Grace. And so we live in a world that doesn't understand peace. And we know the Bible talks about Christians having a peace that surpasses all understanding. Well, you can't understand it if you don't know the one who gives peace. You know, I mean, people in the world, I mean, we know the opposite of peace is, is war and chaos and confusion. And, you know, but that's, I mean, the world, that's where they're living. And you, you can't have this peace without first understanding the grace of God first. You know, and so that's, we got to lead people into that. Uh, but the, the result of that, you know, is, is this peace that we're talking about. So, <clears throat> all right, that leaves us like two minutes to talk about love today. <laughs> all right, we'll close the book on grace. Um, let's talk about love. I really want to get into next week. I don't have enough, I don't want to start next week, but next week we're going to hit the ground running with verse 3 in Jude, and we're, we're going to be moving pretty swiftly uh, from that point to the end of... Uh, the end of the book, but <clears throat> let's talk about love. How, how does our world define love today? Okay, lust, physical, physical relationships, sex, things like that. Okay, um, any other, any other, how our, our world defines love? So that's certainly one aspect of it. Okay, family, yeah, so, you know, yeah, we make a lot of excuses <laughs> when it comes to family, and uh, a lot of blind spots there, I think, too, can, can happen through family. Uh, anything else? Anybody else want to weigh in on this? Warm, fuzzy feelings, yeah, Chris is all about the warm, fuzzy feel. You and Kendall today, so Jeremy? Yeah, see, I, I, you know, I, I mentioned this a couple years ago, that, like, if I said I love my wife, but I also love bacon, like, you know what I mean, though? Like, we're using the same word to describe, you know, my relationship with two very different things. Uh, I, I like bacon, but I'm not committed to it for the rest of my life. And, I mean, you know what I mean? We can eat bacon as, as evidence that Jesus loves us. You know, the law's been, been broken there for us. So, yeah. Um, okay, uh, any other ideas on love? How, how about Tolerance. How about the world's, you know, um, confusion between love and tolerance? You know, if you, if you love me, what? You accept me, you'll support me, uh, you'll go along with whatever it is that I want to do, um, you'll never say anything negative, you'll, you won't hold me accountable for my actions, you'll let me do whatever I want. And, you know, you, 
usually there's a group of people we see that with or have in all our lives they were toddlers <laughs> you know it's a very immature attitude is what I'm trying to say when we sit back and say you know everyone hates me that disagrees with me or if you don't you don't support everything that I'm doing then, then it's because you're a racist or because you're hateful or, or a sexist or something like that and that's where our world's at but it's a very very immature mindset it's a very immature mindset um, you know and, and so you know people throwing tantrums because they don't get their way is, is really what's going on and then what happens is that translates over in the church I mean, we see a lot of this sort of immature behavior in the church where, well, we want it our way, it's, you know, and, and, and that sort of a thing, and we want to do things our way, and if you won't let me do it my way instead of the Bible's way, then it's because you don't love me or you don't love the people here or things like that. And so, and then, you know, people end up with that with God. Well, if God really loved me, he'd support me. You know, he'd be okay with what I'm doing. He'd be okay with my decisions. Let's go to 1 Corinthians 3. What? Okay. That's true. Yeah. You're right. You're right. Absolutely right. Yeah. Respect goes a long way there. And we saw that in Malachi too, didn't we? We saw that uh, he said, you call me father, uh, but where's my respect? You know, was, was, the, was the accusation. And so, yeah, that's good. Uh, let's go to 1 Corinthians chapter 13. You know, we always, people call this the love chapter. I call it the grow up chapter. Um, <clears throat> but, you know, we, we go, just look at verse 6 here. Um, love, of course, does not rejoice in unrighteousness, but rejoices with the truth. You know, I mean, that's, that alone kind of puts a lot of that stuff at bay here. You know, I, I can't celebrate sin and, be, and, do, and, and that's not loving for me to celebrate sin. Now, the world has that backward, you know. Uh, someone's in sin. We, we should celebrate that. We should support that. We should encourage that somehow. It's certainly to be accepting. Uh, but love does not rejoice in unrighteousness. And so the reason it's not loving is because it doesn't help you get out of that. Right? And so to be loving, I have to also speak the truth to you all the time. And that means sometimes I have to say things that you don't want to hear some things, you know, I, I, I use this example a lot. You know, my, my kids, we, we try to press honesty on my kids really hard. And, and you know, it's, it's, it's I, I really want to make sure that I'm living a life that's not lived by lies to any extent of, of, of what that would look like. I, I don't want to attend things that I won't support. I, don't, I won't sit into a sermon. If I hear one thing come out of that guy's mouth that's not scriptural, I'm, I walk out the door. I don't sit there and give my support anymore. You know, I mean, these things are important to me. I, I don't want to give any sort of agreement or celebration or acceptance to things that I know are not true. And, uh, and so, like, we, we press real hard with our kids that they're, they're not going to lie. You've got to tell the truth all the time. And sometimes, this doesn't backfire for me, but it backfires on other people. Um, like, we've, we've got someone, we've got a family member that, you know, she cooked a meal. And then she asked Cohen if he liked it. <laughs> and he said... I don't know, what did he say? No, I, I've had better. Uh, <laughs> you know, what, but the point is, like, he knows to not just volunteer that information out. Like, that's not necessarily nice. But if you, you gave him the keys, he's going to get in the car and ride. You know what I mean? Like, you asked, what did you think of this meal? And then they get upset because he said he didn't like it. Well, would you rather him lie 
and say it was good even though it wasn't? Like, how's that better? You know, and I tell, like, when we do marriage counseling with young, young couples, I always, I always tell the guy, listen, if your wife cooks a meal and it's garbage, it tastes awful, you have to tell her or you will eat that for the rest of your life. <laughs> like, it's better to just be honest and say, I don't like it. This wasn't good. She might, it might hurt her feelings, you know, or whatever, but like, it's that or eat it for the, you pick one. You know what I mean? You, you can't, you can't complain about it, ever, you know. So, but, but my point is honesty is the best policy, right? And so, but love speaks the truth. And we see that again in Ephesians 4.15, we're to speak the, the, the word of truth and love. Like that's the, so love and truth are two sides of the same coin. You have to be truthful and honest in everything. And people always say, well, there's little white lies. No, there isn't. You can be truthful in everything. You can be truthful in everything. You don't have to be nice. Uh, like lying to people to be nice isn't being nice anymore. You're allowed to say that you don't want to do something or that you don't like something or that you don't want to participate in something and that shouldn't hurt everybody's feelings, okay? And so have some boundaries, you know, speak the truth. It's such an important thing. Uh, but to clarify, let me explain what this means. Speaking the truth is not the same as I didn't lie. Do you understand? Not the same thing. Real love is speaking the truth. And, you know, it, that means that sometimes you have to be abrasive. You can't just, biting your tongue isn't the same thing as I spoke the truth, right? So, you know, in other words, you know, Cohen, do you like my meal? He could have said nothing, which isn't a lie, but he spoke the truth. So I was proud of him, okay? Um, even though he got a, got a little under fire for it, you know. But my point is, you know, as God's people... We have to speak the truth. We can't just decide, well, I didn't lie to people. And I see this all the time. We get a little smug about it. We'll say, well, at least I'm not out there handing out sinners' prayer tracks. Or at least I'm not out there, you know, bringing people up to do an altar call or something like that. Well, how many people have you sat down with and told them the actual gospel truth? Because just because you're not spreading a lie doesn't mean that you're spreading the truth. Okay, and so love speaks the truth which is not the same as just I didn't say something wrong or I didn't say, um, I didn't say a lie. Um, and so, the problem is we kind of act like, well, God, God should just like us just the way we are. And there's, there's no point in the scriptures where we see God being okay with us staying just the way that we are. Like, there's never a point where Jesus met somebody and said, you know what, just your life as you're living it, just keep doing what you're doing. Just be you. You know what I mean? Um, do you. Like, that's not, that's not in there. You know what I mean? Uh, everywhere it was repent, come follow me, pick up your cross daily. You know, every, everyone he met, the message was, hey, you, you need to come learn of me. You need, you, need, you need to come follow me. You need to pick up your cross and come this way. And so, but in the church, we, wanted, we want this come as you are mentality where just show up and, you know, you don't have to change. You don't have to do anything different. You don't have to repent. You just need to be here. And the, the scripture is not, it just doesn't point that way. I mean, Matthew chapter 5, Jesus makes the statement, if your right hand makes you stumble, do what with it? Cut it out. Yeah, your right arm offends you. Cut it off, you know? And people say, ah, well, he was... Listen, <laughs> he's, again, he's never encountered anyone just told them, you keep doing exactly what you're doing. So love is not, it's not tolerance because sinful behavior is dangerous, right? If I see my kids doing something dangerous, I'm not just going to say, well, they'll figure it out. Now, I do that with some things, but if it's dangerous, I have to intervene. Don't care if it hurts their feelings. 
right? I'd rather them hurt their feelings than lose an arm or a leg or an eye. Or You, you know what I'm saying? And so, you know, and, and we understand that. You know, kids are going to play with fire. The loving thing to do isn't to take a stance of tolerance in that situation, right? But take immediate and possibly drastic steps to try to protect them. And when we see people playing with the fires of hell, why do we think that the best thing to do is just not hurt their feelings? Like, we ought to take immediate and drastic steps to try to address these things. And so, sin's a very, very damaging thing, not just to the people, but to the people around it as well. Um, Romans 12, 9, let love be without hypocrisy. Abhor what's evil, cling to what's good. So, we're to utterly detest things that aren't good. And so, a love that is silent is no different than a love that's tolerant on sin. It's also hypocritical. So, love holds people accountable. Okay, and so, ultimately... Love is going to boil down to a love for people's souls. So, you know, if you love your children, if you love your spouse, if you want to get them to heaven, you're not going to lie to yourself or lie to them about what it's going to take to get there, right? You've got to be honest with them. Now, here's another misconception because I think we've got six or seven minutes. How many times have we heard that love is a feeling or love is an emotion? Boston told us love was more than a feeling, but I don't know if anyone caught that. But <laughs> um, You ever heard someone say they fell in love? I have always thought, you know, like it's a ditch. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like I just didn't see it coming kind of a thing. Here, here's, the, here's the problem. What, that whole mindset, why I just fell in love, is that love is, is uncontrollable. Okay? And the problem with I just fell in love is that people, what? They tend to fall out of love. That's the problem. And so, passion accompanies love. I'm not going to say that it doesn't, but real love is deeper than a feeling. Love is a commitment. Okay? Uh, feelings, okay, even strong feelings are not enough. Who, who's, who's been married the longest here? Well, how, how long? 65. We got any, anyone over 65 years of marriage? That's, uh, we got, you got close, yeah, yeah. Same, same spouse for the whole... Whole run of it. That's impressive. Congratulations. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. Emotions don't hold up a marriage for that long, do they? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So, well, here's why. Feelings are pretty unpredictable. You know what I mean? Uh, and, and, and marriage and family is, is full of highs and lows. You know, it kind of goes like a roller coaster sometimes. And so, your relationship is usually not even the factor in the highs and lows. You know, a lot of times it's things outside of your relationship. It's finances. It's the economy. It's people getting sick. It's other people in your family that are getting sick. It's things going on at work. There's success and failure in, in various aspects of your life. It's your children. It's unemployment. You know, feelings don't get you through those challenging times. And so how is it that two individuals can make these passionate vows of love to one another for better and for worse until death do us part? And then a few years later, like they hate each other to the point where they don't even want to speak to each other anymore. It's like, well, one feeling replaced another feeling. Okay, and so let's think of it this way. Your relationship between parents and children. The world thinks love is uncontrollable, right? That love is just a feeling and we fall into it. Looking back at your own childhood, okay, not even your kids because... At your own child, how many times did your parents' love for you overcome how they felt about you in the moment? Jeremy's got a big smile on his face there. Bad kid. Yeah, I mean, anybody do? I mean, okay, how many of you with your own kids, were there times when you could have just like, I mean, yeah, yeah. 
So, I mean, there's times when, when how you feel about your children in the moment, right, uh, your love for them has to surpass that. Okay, and so love is not, is not, not I mean, love isn't a feeling. It just isn't. And so, um, you know, the point is we can choose to love our spouse even when we're frustrated with them. We choose to love our kids even when they're making stupid decisions, you know. And so you can also choose to love an employer that's making harsh demands on you. You can choose to love a neighbor that's, that's, that's doing things to annoy you. And in the body of Christ, you can choose to love all the people sitting next to you in the pews, right? We can, we can do that. And so let's look at what Scripture says. Matthew 5, 44, I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. You going to fall in love with your enemies? You just going to feel it? No, he's telling you to make a decision there. You know, uh, you're going to have to make a choice. We are commanded to love God with all our heart, to love our neighbor as ourselves, and to love one another as Christ loved us. And husbands are to love their wives as Christ loves the church. If love is irresistible and an uncontrollable feeling, why would Christ command it unless love is a choice and a commitment that we make, right? And so, here's the thing. Real biblical love makes you responsible and puts you in the driver's seat. Emotional love, I'm just on long for the ride. I'm just in the passenger seat, right? I'm only responding to how someone makes me feel rather than actually making a decision. Real biblical scripture love motivates me to act and do something, like love my enemies. And so, so God so loved the world that he gave. But emotional love is just me expecting something from somebody else. Real biblical scriptural love is centered on others, and that love is a serving love. But emotional love is selfish, and it's very demanding. Real scriptural biblical love is faithful, regardless of the circumstances. Think about your wedding vows, for better, for worse, for sickness and in health, till death. You know, those are circumstances. Love can survive circumstances, but emotional love will only last as long as the feeling lasts. You know, you read 1 Corinthians 13, that whole thing, and ask yourself if there's any part of that that you don't have control over. You know, it's all decisions that you make or you, or you choose not to make. Um, love your enemy, right? Love someone when you don't feel like it is the point. And so... You know, I would argue that's the greatest expression of love, to love someone when I don't feel like it, <laughs> you know. Um, but, but that's the idea, that love overcomes our feelings. It should not be controlled by our feelings. And so love is speaking the truth all the time, and real biblical love is, is not controlled by our feelings. It's a commitment and it's a choice that we make. And the last thing, because we're completely out of time, <clears throat> The world seems to think that the opposite of love is hate. Love and hate, love and hate. And that's not true. It's kind of a package deal. I love my wife. If anyone tried to hurt my wife, you're going to see my hatred real quick. You see what I mean? I love my children. If someone broke into my house, they're not going to be met with love because uh, you just endangered my family. You see, I hate the things that pose a danger to the things that I love, and so does God, which is why sin is a problem. Sin is a danger that's being imposed on people that he loves. And so God hates sin. And, and there's plenty of things in the scriptures that we see that God hates. And it's because, you know, you hate the things that, that are dangerous to the things that you love. And so love is essentially the choosing of one thing and the rejection of, of something else. Um, you know, uh, we got, you, you can look up Psalms chapter 5, Proverbs chapter 6, you know, things that the Lord hates. But the point is, God hates the things that destroys and corrupts his people. And so my, my point is this, what is the opposite of love? If it's not hatred, it's apathy. The opposite of love is apathy. It's indifference. 
Okay? And so we think about this, you know, my, I actually, this is in my notes. This is as close as I get to a joke. What's the most common sin? Apathy, but who cares? There you go. Um, that's the one joke I know. So, uh, now, okay, hatred's more easy to recognize. Like, it's easier to recognize people that are anti-Christianity and anti-Jesus and anti-the Bible and, and, you know, and, you know, trying to shut down the church and trying to harass Christians. And we say, well, they have, there's an awful lot of commitment in what they're doing. Um, it, it's a lot harder to see the people that are just don't care. But I want you to understand, you know, I've seen couples where it's like, well, they aren't fighting and it's not because they love each other so much. It's because they got to the point where they quit caring anymore. And so they just, the fights don't happen anymore. Like that's not love. Like that's not a love. That's not peaceful. That's not a happy relationship. It's a relationship that's now indifferent. And it's on its, it's sinking. It's not going to last, you know. And so mom and dad, well, they must love their kids because they never abuse them. How much time do they spend with them? That's, you know, I mean, we've all heard it, kids. They define love by time. Like that's, that's what matters. And so what about the church? We've got lots of people that aren't anti-church and aren't against God. They don't talk bad about God, but how involved are they? Okay, 1 John 3.18 says, Let us not love with word or with tongue, but in deed and truth. How do we love? In deed and truth. Okay, so the opposite of that is not malice and hatred. It's apathy and indifference. John 14.15, Jesus said, If you love me, you'll obey my commandments. And so, think about that. The opposite of love for God... Is, is just an indifference. Not caring, not getting involved. I'm not going to commit to this. That's the opposite of love for God. So anyway, like I said, we talked today, mercy, grace, peace, and love. Just trying to get those things back to a biblical, scriptural standpoint that the people, you know, that Jude's talking about, you know, would go a long way if they didn't let those things go. Uh, it's important today. We need to redefine those, or not redefine, we need to not redefine those words. We need to keep those things rooted in Scripture at all times. Um, next week, we're going to jump right into verse 3, and we're going to hit the ground running, uh, getting into some real exciting stuff in Jude this week, and the first week, just kind of a breaking some ground here. But let's have a word of prayer, and we'll close out for tonight. Father God, we're grateful, thankful for the opportunity that we have to come together here this evening to study your word again this, tonight. And uh, thankful for everyone that's came out to be a part of this. And we pray that, uh, that Father, your church be strengthened, that uh, we carry these things into our congregations. And that, Father, you give us wisdom to see how to apply these things, that we could be uh, growing all the more and, and just uh, um, committed to you. And, and that, Father, we'll commit ourselves to uh, be people of truth and, um, and Father, biblical scriptural love and that we can appreciate and understand the grace that's been offered to us and uh, you know that that comes uh, with expectation that we would learn um, to, to live a certain way and, and that Father that it, it would lead us into those things and Father just so grateful and thankful for uh, the mercy, the grace, the peace that we can have and the truth that, that is known to us through the word. We pray uh, all this in the name of Christ Jesus our Lord and Savior. Amen.